So my wife says to me the other day, honey, we don't communicate enough. Now, if you've been married long enough, you know that when your wife starts a sentence with we, what does she actually mean? You. Been married, what, almost 10 years, 10 years in December. And you know when your wife tells you a problem, as a guy, you know why she's telling you the problem, right? She's not wanting to communicate about the problem, is she? She wants you to fix the problem, and that's why you're a guy. Because that's what guys do. Guys fix the problems, right? Women come up with problems and guys fix the problem. That's why we're so compatible. Makes the world go round. And so I come up with this incredible plan, and I haven't implemented yet. I need your, your feedback on whether you think it's going to work, on how I'm going to fix my part of the problem. You see, it's not that she's not communicating enough. It's that I'm not communicating enough. So I'll come up with what I call the love solution. The love solution. Write this down, uh, guys. Uh, you may want to use this in your own life. I've dedicated 10 minutes of every day to communicate with my wife. Not for her to talk to me, for me to talk to her. She talks all the time. She doesn't need an allocated time. 10 minutes. L is for lavish. Right? About two and a half, three minutes. I lavish praise on my wife. Your hair smells so nice. Your eyes sparkle in the moonlight. Sometimes I repeat it because I can't come up with too many poetic phrases, but uh, I figure it's good enough, right? She wants us to communicate, so I'm going to communicate. I'm going to tell her how I feel. And then after about two and a half minutes, I figure the next station along the way is the O for oops. You know, you've got to apologize for things every now and again, right? And I forget. So every day I've allocated about two and a half minutes or so for oops. Oh, honey, I'm sorry I forgot the socks on the floor. I'm sorry I forgot the garbage last night and there's stuff all over the floor now. I'm sorry. You know, and the list goes on. Little things that I know that she's annoyed at. And it's good to get into the habit of doing that, right? You don't want to let things unresolved, the oops section. Then we go to V. That's the value section. That's where I affirm her. Uh, not lavishing praise, but the things I value. I'm really glad that you cooked so well for me. I'm glad that you wash my clothes. I'm glad that you iron them. And I really explain and express the things I value that she does for me. How are we going so far? Should I write a book? I should do marriage seminars, relationship advice. And then we get to the E of this L-O-V-E solution. And the E is for extras. You see, this needs to be two-way communication. It's not so much about what I appreciate and what I'm grateful for, but I have some needs as well, right? So this is the extras section. This is what she can do for me. And I start to list, you know. Uh, look, dinner was good last night, but, uh, you know, there's a bit of improvement there. And, you know, I need a back rub and a foot massage most evenings. And, you know, we go through a list of the kind of things I need. And then that's about it for our 10 minutes. And as I said, she has ample time to talk. So that's it. I usually get my laptop and I'm off into my office or off for work. And what do you guys think? Is it going to work? Should we take a vote? Maybe not. <laughs> you know, they say that communication is the cornerstone, the foundation, the most important thing in relationships. Would you agree? Yeah? What's a relationship without communication? How many friends do you have that you don't talk to? And I've spent a lot of time doing marriage counselling with couples, sometimes uh, couples old enough to be my grandparents. And without doubt, every single time it boils down to communication. She said, he said, I didn't say, he didn't say. And it always comes down to people not speaking the same language, not 
connecting emotionally, but because of the things they are saying or aren't saying. Communication, pivotal, absolutely vital to relationships. And it's hard enough to communicate with people that we see, isn't it? Whether it's Facebook or Twitter or with your husband, wife, girlfriend, boyfriend, your best friend, your BFF. I'm learning new things. You know, it's hard enough. Especially if you're in a relationship, you know, sometimes the other person says, tell me what's wrong, and you don't want to say what's wrong. Tell me, tell me, tell me. And then you tell them what's wrong, and they get upset at you for telling them what's wrong. You've been there, done that? Sometimes you can't win. Communication is a bit of a challenge. So, you know, there's so many things we can learn in human relationships about communication, but then when it comes to God, you can't see God. You can't touch God. You can't feel God. You can't hear God audibly. You send an SMS and he doesn't reply. Or an email. You get on your knees and you pray and sometimes it feels like the prayers go, well, not very high. And then you hear Christians talking about having a relationship with God. Have you heard that phrase before? He's my friend. Well, you know, I used to say that about Santa Claus when I was five. He's my friend now because he brings me gifts for Christmas. But how do you have a relationship with someone you don't know, with someone you can't see? Is it even possible, especially when relationships with visible people have so many challenges in and of themselves? There was a group of people 2,000 years ago that had a very similar dilemma. One of them was a terrorist. Did you know there are terrorists in the Bible? You ever encountered any terrorists in the Bible? There's a terrorist in the Bible. In fact, there's a group of friends, and uh, we're going to go to John chapter 16 in the Bible. John chapter 16. There's a group of friends who have a a group leader. You know what it's like normally when there's five, eight, ten of you? There's usually somebody that has the initiative. Someone that says what restaurant you're going to, what you're doing on the weekend, and all the other friends usually follow. And this is no different to any other regular group of friends. One of them is actually a terrorist. The word that's used in the Bible is zealot. Simon was his other name, Simon the zealot. What did zealots do? Well, they were very zealous for their nation. They were so zealous that they would often carry daggers in their cloaks, and when a Roman soldier walked past and it looked safe and there was no one around, they would take the dagger out and, you know give it to the Roman soldier to keep permanently. It'd be stuck in his chest. So one of them was a zealot. Another one was a what you'd call a, a crime boss or a mafia thug. His name was Matthew. In the Bible, they call him a tax collector, but that's what tax collectors really were. They were like the debt collectors. You know, they come pounding on your door when you haven't paid your phone bill. And no, they don't work for Telstra. They work for the guys that work for Telstra. And, uh, you know, if you don't pay your bill, first they take your car, then they take your lounges, then your TV, and eventually they take your iPhone. And that's, you can't live without an iPhone, right? So that's what Matthew is. He's a tax collector who taxes people. The problem with Matthew is to be a tax collector, you didn't just, you know, tax people the regular taxes. To get the position of a tax collector, what did you have to do? You had to bid for it, Right? So you would go to the local government and you would say, I would like to be the tax collector for Melbourne CBD. And the government would say, okay, come to this date. And a few other people who wanted to do the same thing would come up and they'd have an auction. And they'd say, how much are you willing to buy the tax collecting franchise for Melbourne CBD? And you'd have a bid and you'd check your bank, you'd talk to your financier, see how much money he'd lend you. And whoever had the highest price would basically be given the rights to be the tax collector for that particular area. Sounds like a good gig, doesn't it? Well, it was a really good gig, because once you became the tax collector, you would get given soldiers at your disposal to help you collect taxes, and you really had the flexibility to adjust 
the tax rate. And what would you do? You would basically have a tax rate that would make sure it would cover your expenses, what it cost you to buy your franchise. And then on top of that, you would add little bonuses, right? Oh, uh, yeah, this is um, sunny day tax today. It's gone up by 5%. It's raining. It makes it harder to do. This is, you know, cloudy day tax. And every single day, they would come up with something different. People hated tax collectors. And if you didn't pay your, your sunny or your cloudy day tax or your grumpy day tax, well, they had soldiers at their disposal to make sure that you would pay your tax. And you couldn't get around it. You couldn't go sell in the market because there were tax collectors at the entrance to the market. When you came out of the market, you couldn't come out of the market because there were tax collectors on the outside of the market. You couldn't cross a bridge because there were tax collectors waiting for you to cross the bridge. They were thugs. People hated tax collectors. One of them was a tax collector, Matthew. There were a few fishermen among there. Um, how would you describe fishermen in today's terms? Have any of you worked in, um, I guess, in construction? Know anyone that worked in construction? Pretty rough and tough, you know. Um, if you had to record a conversation on a trade site and then put it on television, it would sound sort of like this. Can you please get the beep and the beep? Come here, beep. Over there, beep. Let's go, beep, beep, beep. That's sort of what it's like on a construction site, right? Really rough. There were a few fishermen that were quite rough. Um, there was a guy who was a, a born pessimist. It doesn't matter what you told him, he didn't believe it. His name was Thomas. No, no, you had to really poke him in the eye before he could see something. You know, this is the group of friends that this leader, this teacher, this rabbi, this itinerant preacher manages to collect around him. His name is Jesus. He's got these 12 guys, and Jesus does some amazing things, like walking on water. That's pretty cool, and he didn't have a Lexus hoverboard either to do it. Been keeping up with the news? Lexus is invented? Anyway, you can look that up on Google afterwards. <coughs> so... This is Jesus. He's got these friends. And even though they're so different, there's a, a, a thug, there's a pessimist, there's the, the fisherman crude and loud, and there's Peter, you know. If you go and say hello to Peter, he'll punch you first and then ask you why you said hello to him. And then he'll say sorry after, but, but that's how Peter is. So you've got this motley crew with Jesus, but they've fallen in love with Jesus, not in a romantic way, but in a friendship way. He's the hero. He raises the dead. When you're hungry... It's wonderful to have Jesus with you. Why? Because he can do amazing things. He can take a few loaves of bread, a few fish, and multiply it and feed what? The thousands, according to the Bible. When your best friend dies, Lazarus, Jesus can do amazing miracles. The Jews believed that when you died for around three days... Sorry, let me just... For around three days, your spirit would stick near the grave. That's what the Jews believed. So every now and again, people would come back to life. And we have that in modern science today where people seem dead. They put them in the morgue and then, you know, a day later, there's someone knocking on the morgue door. I've read a few of those stories. So the Jews had this three-day concept. But after three days, your spirit departs. You were definitely dead after three days. I'm not saying that's true. That was just popular in Jewish mythology. But Jesus has a good friend, Lazarus, and Lazarus dies. And they tell Jesus that Lazarus dies, and Jesus doesn't hurry back. He waits for four days. And then he finally gets there four days later to make sure that everybody knows Lazarus is dead. Lazarus is an important man. He has relatives that are high up in the religious order in Jerusalem. The high priest is a close family friend. And Jesus comes and raises Lazarus from the dead. Wouldn't it be good to have a friend that could raise you from the dead? That'd be nice, wouldn't it? You don't have to worry. You can speed through Melbourne CBD and it's okay. 
Because if something goes wrong, Jesus will come and tap you on the shoulder, wake you up, put you back together. But then Jesus says something to them in John 16. And we're going to read from verse 5. This is very close to the end of Jesus' time on earth. Just before he gets arrested, abused, humiliated, tortured, crucified. Verse 5. But now I go my way to him that sent me. Yet none of you ask me where I'm going because I've said these things to you. Sorrow has filled your heart. So Jesus has spent some time with them. It's Thursday night. They've had the last meal together. The only one of Jesus' friends or followers with any sort of half a brain, Judas, has just gone to betray him, to sell him. The only guy you could depend on has turned his back on Jesus. He's gone. He's there with the other 11 and he's telling them, I'm going. I'm leaving. And no, there's no Facebook. There's no SMS. There's no email. There's no Twitter. I'm going. How would you feel if your best friend who can multiply food, who can walk on water, who can raise the dead, who can heal your mother-in-law, even though you might not have wanted her healed in the first place, but how would you feel if your best friend, the one who could do anything and everything, says to you, I'm going. It's only been three and a half years. Now remember, these guys have left, Matthew left his tax collecting business. Simon has stopped carrying a zealot knife with him. Peter, James, John, Andrew, they left their fishing boats. They've given everything up. They don't have careers to go back to. And just after three years, when you're hoping that finally, you know, maybe Jesus will become the next prime minister and you can be a member of parliament, just just when things are starting to look at Jesus, says, I'm sorry, I'm going. And I'm going so far away that I'm not going to be around anymore. How would you feel? Have you ever had friends leave? Have you ever moved away from different places and you sort of lose contact, you sort of lose touch? It's it's not easy. I've had that happen. High school, uni, uh, we've moved around. We're in our 14th move in 10 years through ministry. And you you lose friends along the way. It's, It's sad, but we still have communication. Jesus is saying, I'm going very far away. And then he says something to them that is actually supposed to make them feel better. But I'm not sure if it has that intended effect. Verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's good. It's expedient for you that I go away. How? How is it good? It almost sounds like one of those uh, really sad breakup moments, you know, when uh, that girl or that guy says, it's not, it's not you. <laughs> it's me, really. It's me. You're perfect. You're, you're all I ever dreamed of. But it's me. I have issues. That's what it sounds like, right? That's how I can imagine the disciples feeling right about now. And then he says to them, it's better that I go away because if I don't go away, the comforter won't come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. So he says, I'm going, but let me tell you why it's better. It's better because if I go, I can send somebody to you. And they're using personal pronouns here, the comforter. This is a being. This is someone that can interact with you. The comforter will come, and it's much better that he comes than me being here. What exactly does that mean? What did Jesus have in mind, and what does this have to do with having a relationship with God? Just a few verses later... In verse 12 and uh, 13, Jesus begins to describe a little bit about this comforter. Verse 12, he says, I have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. 
But when he, the spirit of truth, is come, this is talking about the comforter, the same being, he will guide you into truth. For he won't speak of himself, but whatsoever he hears, that he will speak and he will show you things to come. Throughout the book of John, Jesus talks about this being the Holy Spirit. And here again, Jesus is talking and he's using different names to describe the Holy Spirit. The comforter, the advocate, the guide, the counselor, the coach. The word in Greek is parakletos, which means the person who will walk alongside you. Today, a, a common profession that has developed in the last 10 years or so is a life coach. Have you ever heard of life coaches? Yeah? I used to think that was a bit strange. Well, you need a life coach. I'm okay. Thank you very much. I might need a tennis coach. I need a soccer coach. I don't need a life coach. But hey, it's not a bad idea. It's someone to bounce ideas off, someone to talk to, someone to get some feedback, someone to walk alongside you, someone to point you things in your life that you may not always be able to see. And it's a booming business. In fact, some of the top CEOs in the world have life coaches. Not to teach them how to be better CEOs, but to challenge and point out things to them that their employees may not do. What exactly is the Holy Spirit and how does he work in our lives? Some people say, I've never heard the voice of God. God doesn't speak to me. I can guarantee you that God spoke to you probably this morning. And he probably spoke to you yesterday and the day before. How? Well, just a few verses before, when Jesus was talking about the Comforter, let's read what the Comforter actually does. Verse Chapter 16 and verse 8. It says, when he is come, when this Comforter, this Counselor, this Advocate, this walking alongside you friend, this Coach comes, what will he do? He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. You see, Jesus says something. He says, it's better if I go away. Because when he was here on earth, there was one man with 12 friends and thousands of followers. Can you imagine trying to get access to Jesus when he was here? You'd be waiting a while, wouldn't you? Even if you were only one of those 12, let alone the crowd, the thousands, you'd be waiting a while. And if you got stuck behind Peter, forget it. Go to sleep. Come back tomorrow. You weren't getting a word in. But Jesus says when the Holy Spirit comes... It's basically me. It's me talking through this being, and I'm with you at every step of the way. I'm with you all the time. You don't have to wait in line to communicate with me, because through the Spirit, I'm communicating with you all the time. Even if Peter is talking his head off and holding up the cue, that's okay. Because the Spirit, another person of the Godhead, is so powerful, so amazing, so unique, that he can communicate with you individually while at the same time communicating with others. And who is the Spirit? He's basically sending messages from me, Jesus says, from me to you. And what kind of messages does he start to send first? Well, here it actually gives us three very clear categories, which is why I say God was speaking to you, Jesus was communicating with you this morning and yesterday, and sometimes we, we may not have even realized it. First he says he reproves the world of sin. What exactly does that mean? You know, when um, my daughter, my first one, turned about one and a half, she was 15 months actually, when she started to walk. She was a bit of a, she's very cautious. She doesn't like to do things until she can do them right. She refused to walk, absolutely refused. And we put an iPhone on the table once and filmed her when we weren't in the room and we caught her on camera standing up and practicing walking. 
But when we came into the room, straight away, she fell back down. When she finally had the courage to walk in public, within three days, she was walking normally. And ever since she's been doing that, she's extremely cautious. She wants to make sure she can do something right. And when she's ready, she'll do it and generally do it right the first time. Now, when she finally started to walk, now she was able to get into drawers and and doors in the kitchen. And, uh, you know, we had this bottle of detergent and it just looks so colorful and it's beautiful and liquid and green and yellow and all sorts of things. So I had to have a good chat with my daughter and I sat her down and I started to explain to her what surfactants were. And I started to explain to her about functional materials and catalytic enzymes, and I explained to her that when these things go into your esophagus, they react adversely, and they start to burn. At first, it's a tingling sensation. And I took my laptop out, and I went onto Wikipedia, I went onto YouTube, I showed her some videos, and then when I looked at her, she was asleep. What was wrong with that scenario? What was the problem? You see, I hated the fact that when I was little, my parents would say, do something, and I would say, why? And what would they say? Because I said so. So I said, I would never do that to my children. And when I had children, that's exactly what I did. I started to try to reason with them and explain things to them. She couldn't care less. (laughs) She didn't want to know. She just wanted to drink the thing. And I discovered very quickly that communication is a growth process. You don't talk to a two-year-old the same you do to a three-year-old or four-year-old or even a ten-year-old. It changes constantly as a person grows. And God says, I would love to communicate with you. Jesus says, I want to be with you every step of the way. I want to be your life coach through the Spirit. I want to walk with you. I want to guide you. I want to be there. However, the first point of call, the first way he communicates with us, the Bible says, is to reprove of sin. What does that mean? It's like with a two-year-old. What are the kind of interactions you have with a two-year-old? What things do you talk about mostly with a two-year-old? The meaning of life? Purpose? Destiny? When you grow up, vote for the liberals. Labor always gets us into debt. No, no, I'm not trying to advocate any political party. That's just uh, what uh, the Sydney Morning Herald said. Um, no, at that age, it's usually to do with right and wrong, isn't it? Do this, don't do that. And in fact, here it says, what will he do? In verse um, 8, he will reprove the world of sin, of what's wrong, of righteousness, what's right, and of judgment, of consequences. You see, God wants to talk to us. He wants to interact with us. But the journey begins as it does with an infant, with right and wrong. And when we start to respond to God talking to us to right and wrong, then he says, well, now that you're growing... Now that the things that are preventing us from having a deeper relationship are starting to eliminate and move out of the way, now that we're moving beyond basics, now we can start to have more meaningful conversations. Like we did with our daughter just a few weeks ago. Would you like to go to school or would you like to be homeschooled? Maybe it's still a bit early. I'm not sure she understands the concept. But hey, we're moving along from don't drink detergent to starting to talk about schooling. And what exactly does it mean when God talks to us about right and wrong? If you'd like to open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. There's a verse here that some of you may have heard, maybe familiar to us. Um, but even still, we, I, I for a long time missed what this verse was actually talking about. In 1 John chapter 1 verse 9, it's talking about this concept of uh, right and wrong, of forgiveness. And it says, if we confess our sins... What is God able to do? He's able to forgive. 
And for such a long time, I thought, okay, I want to learn to listen and to hear God's voice. I want to have a friendship and interaction. So God, you know, that little conscience, have you ever had that? You have this little conscience that says something's wrong? The microphone's wrong? That's not the conscience. You know, all of us have that, don't we? How many of you have never had that little nagging feeling that you're doing something wrong? Anyone never had that? No, we have that, don't we? Well, this is the Holy Spirit, the first port of communication. God is trying to interact with us, to talk to us. And he's trying to tell us, hey, if you do this, it might hurt you, and it might hurt others. Wouldn't you do that to your children? If your child came home at the age of seven with a cigarette in their mouth, what would you say? Hey, free choice. No, you'd have a talk to them. You'd interact with them. You'd warn them. So God convicts. That's the first way that God tries to communicate with us. And how do we respond to that? Well, I thought confession was telling God what I had done wrong. You know, and every night I'd go to bed and I'd list the things I felt I had done wrong or that I had heard that little voice tell me I'd done wrong. I'm sorry for speeding. I'm sorry for getting upset at my wife. I'm sorry for, I don't know, insert X here. And then I'd feel content. And at the end of it, I'd say something like, because you know if you've ever done law, you always have to have a blanket clause, right? I'd say something like, I'm sorry for everything else. Hoping that that would cover that. We're okay. God and I are okay. Because I felt confession. I felt God was telling me what I was doing wrong so I could say sorry so that that way I could go to heaven. Because if you haven't said sorry for some things, you're not going to heaven. But that's not how it works. Why do you think a child tells, a parent tells a child that something's wrong? Why do you think they do that? Do you think it's because they need an apology? No. The word confess in the original language, in Greek, the word confess actually means to be in agreement. To be of one mind. That's the literal translation. So here is Jesus. He's talking to you through the Holy Spirit and he's saying, uh, you know at work when that person wasn't nice to you, they were mean, you know when uh, that person gossiped behind your back or, or lied to you, forgive them, be patient. You, you told them off, you shouldn't have. What is God trying to do? Is he trying to get you to tell him what you did wrong? Do you think God needs to know what we did wrong? Do you think he already knows? I think he knows. He's the one telling us it was wrong. It was wrong that you cut off that person on the road. It was wrong that you shouted at your spouse. It was wrong that blah, blah, blah. What God is trying to do is help us realize behaviors that are hurting us and others around us. Because if we keep doing this, who's going to suffer more? Do you think God suffers because we're doing something wrong? He only suffers when we suffer. So he convicts us, he speaks to us, tries to talk to us, and he invites us to confess. And confession isn't telling God what we did wrong. Confession is simply saying, you know what, you're right. That's it. You're right. Thank you for highlighting. I didn't realize. I'm glad you did. He's my life coach. He's walking alongside me. He points out things that I can't see. In the heat of the moment, I'm angry, I'm passionate. He says, nah, that wasn't, that wasn't great. Maybe there's a better way of doing it next time. Let me show you how to do it next time. Next time, do this, do that. That's what it means to convict of righteousness. God isn't asking us to uh, request an apology He's simply saying, agree so that you will learn, so that you will grow, so that your life will be better. And you don't have to wait till the end of the night. You can be in the car. And God says, you, you know, that was wrong. You, you 
the guy cut you off and you shouted at him. Or you got in front of him. I used to like doing this. You know, when someone would cut you off, what would you do? Get in the other lane. Get in front of him. And you wouldn't break too suddenly because you didn't want to have an accident, but just enough to let him know that you knew that what he did was wrong, right? God says, no, I'm talking to you. I want you to be a better person so you can be happier. Revenge never made anybody happy. Revenge never brought lasting satisfaction. Let me talk to you. And I say, then and there, I can communicate with God. I, I can talk to him. I can say, thank you. Wow, thank you for talking to me. You love me so much that you're right here. You're not there to condemn. In fact, Jesus said Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. He didn't come to point a finger. If you feel guilty, it's not God trying to make you feel guilty. God is not in the business of making people feel guilty. That's Satan. Guilt never helped anybody. God is there to convict. And there's a huge difference. Conviction says, I want to help you grow. I want to make your life better. I want to bring more joy and happiness into your life. That's why I'm talking to you. Not so you feel all sorry. Oh, yeah, I'm a bad person. I shouldn't have done that. That's not God's business. He loves us too much for that. He says, I want to talk to you so that we can grow. We can learn. So right there when I'm on the road and I've just done something I shouldn't have, I say, God, thank you. Thank you for talking to me. Thank you that you, the God of the universe, bothered to talk to me on something so small. And show me, help me, give me the strength, because I'm weak. You know, Help me next time to do something that will be better for others and better for me. And that's what it means to begin to have a relationship with God. And that's something that every single one of us can have Not tomorrow, but today. Because I guarantee you that when you leave here this afternoon, tonight when you go home, you're going to hear that still small voice giving you the slightest bit of guidance on some things that you could and shouldn't do. Because you heard it this morning. Even atheists hear it. God speaks to atheists. People that don't believe in him still have that little conscience. That doesn't come from evolution. Like um, Shannon was saying, you didn't walk out of the ocean from slime into a lizard, into a monkey, and then all of a sudden have morals and ethics and a conscience. No, that was God. He says, I love you even if you don't believe in me and I want your good. I'm talking to you. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't hurt, don't steal. It's going to hurt you. It's going gonna, it's gonna to destroy you. That's just the very beginning. And when we start to realize that God is talking to us, we can actually start to communicate with him or start to ask him other things. If you'd like to open your Bibles to Psalm 143 and verse 8. Right there in the Old Testament, Psalm 143 and verse 8, we find a lot of songs, a lot of prayers, a lot of hymns by David. And one of the things that's amazing about David is he literally writes on paper what he wants to say to God. And it's a very powerful lesson because it shows you and I that we can talk to God about pretty much anything. Some of the worst things that David says are like this. God, I have some enemies. I don't like my enemies. In fact, I want you to cut my enemies' heads off. I want you to put a sword through the unborn babies of my enemies' wives. Is that the kind of thing that you'd pray for your enemies? Does that sound like a good thing to do? No. Does that mean we should go out and pray with a voodoo doll hand in hand? God, I want you to burn my co-worker. He got the promotion. I should have got it. Put the voodoo doll in his left arm, in his right leg. Now he can't walk, he can't move. Well, I'll get that promotion next time. No, but what we learn from David is God invites us to talk to him without restraint. You don't go to God and you try to hide what you feel because he already knows. In fact, the word prayer in Greek comes from the concept of negotiation. Did you know that? Have you ever tried to negotiate by yourself, a negotiation of one? 
You can't. Negotiation is always a two-way process. So every time you read prayer in the New Testament, it's literally implying negotiating, talking, interacting. It's two-way. Tell God anything and everything. And then listen to what David says in Psalm 143, verse 8. He says, cause me to what? Does anybody have it there? Cause me to hear? Your loving kindness in the morning. What does he say then? For new do I trust? Yeah, show me the way in which I should walk. So every morning when David is interacting with God, he's saying, I want to hear your voice as well. You know, I'm hearing your voice on right and wrong. I want to know more. I want to learn about the kind of things to do today. What could I do at work? How should I interact with my relationships? And as we start to listen to that still small voice, as we start to acknowledge this isn't some black box, this isn't an evolutionary mechanism designed to keep me safe, because it's not. Running into a burning building when your child is in there, that doesn't keep you safe. That's a recipe for death. That doesn't come from the monkeys or from the apes or from the dinosaurs. That comes from above. And God says, once you learn that it's me talking to you, you can ask me. And as we grow in this relationship, you're going to start to hear my voice louder and clearer. And prayer isn't a Santa Claus list. Prayer is two-way dialogue. It's negotiations. It's interactions. In fact, in Hebrew, the word for prayer used most often in the Old Testament has two connotations. One is evaluation. So when we pray, we're evaluating, we're discussing, we're reflecting. And the other is attachment, joining, unity. So when you look at prayer, it's literally evaluating life, evaluating your day in an attachment with God. It's a two-way thing. I'm talking, I'm in a bond, learning to listen to the voice of God. When I first, you know, I used to be really frustrated about people who talked about a relationship, a relationship with God. I used to hate the concept. I can't have a relationship with an invisible being. And I started looking through the Bible. What does this mean? And I'm reading in the Bible of all these people that are seemingly talking to God. David says, tell me in the morning what I should do. And I'm getting in the morning and, you know, it doesn't seem to be working for me because I'm doing all the talking. And then as I read this first, I thought maybe I should listen a little bit as well. So in the morning I'd say, uh, okay, Tell me something. What should I do today? Tell me about yourself. Talk to me. Help me learn to listen. Let's make this a two-way conversation. And you know, for almost six months, the only thought that came to my mind through that still small voice was, Christian, I love you. That was it. Six months. You know, after about six months, I got really frustrated and I decided to ask for something else. I said, tell me something else. I already know that. And you know, that still small voice came back to me and said, I won't tell you anything else until you believe that. How can we have a conversation if you don't even believe I care about you? Oh, but I know that. No, you don't. Yes, I do. No, you don't. Because you keep trying to earn my love. You keep trying to please me. You keep trying to buy your way into my favor. That's not how it works. I love you because you're mine. I love you because I made you. I love you because you, because I gave my life for you. That's why I love you. Not because you're good. Not because you, you ask me. Not because you pray. Praying, talking, communicating. That's for your benefit. It's not for my benefit, says God. And finally, when I started to realize, okay, maybe God loves me just as I am. He loves me because of how good he is, not because of how good I am. I'm going to talk about the goodness of God this afternoon. After six months, then the conversation started to get a bit more interesting. Then I would pray and ask God for guidance, for wisdom in my day. How can I best be of service to you? How can I make sure that our relationship at home is the best? I'll give you one example. I'm having a heated discussion with my wife. Um, and it's so heated that uh, I have to walk out of the room. I won't go into the details, and to be honest, I can't even remember what it was about. Most, 
Most heated discussions are like that, right? Five minutes later, you forget. So I go into my study, and by this stage, I'm starting to learn that God loves me enough to want to interact, to communicate. Prayer is two ways. The word prayer means dialogue, discussion, negotiation. So I go into the study, and I get on my knees, and I start to talk to God. And I say, God, I have tried everything in my human power to convince my wife that she's wrong. Can you do a miracle and show her otherwise? Or give me wisdom, give me the right words to say to show her that she's wrong and that she needs to see things my way. What a noble, honorable prayer, right? So I'm sitting there and I'm waiting. And then that still small voice, that conscience says, go and apologize. And I said, get behind me, devil. Must be the devil, right? I know I'm right. I know she's wrong. And so I started having this dialogue, and God says to me, Christian, regardless of who's right or wrong, that's not the issue. It's your attitude. You got upset. You lost your patience. You acted in a way that was inappropriate. It doesn't matter who's right or wrong. That's not the point. That's not the point of relationships being right or wrong. The point of relationships is growing through things. And, you know, I got to the point where I finally agreed that maybe I could have handled it differently. And I said, but God, I can't go to lie to my wife. I'm not sorry. <laughs> I know I could have done things better, but she's still wrong. What do I do? And that still small voice says, well, you're not sorry. And you'll never be sorry because you can't change your heart and emotions. You are who you are. But I can do miracles. You ask me for help. And I I will help you. I said, okay, so help me. I still didn't feel sorry. I still knew I was right. So I said, well, okay, what do I do now? Well, get up and go to her room and say sorry. So I get up. I go to the room. And when I open the door, in that instant, my whole attitude it was like a revelation, like a lightning bolt from heaven. All of a sudden I realized, you know what? It doesn't matter who's right or wrong. Nothing matters except how we love each other, how we interact. And when I said sorry, a second later, God had done something that I couldn't do for myself, transform my heart, my emotions, my attitudes, and I really genuinely felt sorry. And when I said sorry, my wife said sorry. I said, you don't have anything to say sorry for. It wasn't an issue. And I'm trying to convince her she doesn't have to say sorry. And she's trying to convince me I don't have to say sorry. That's not a bad way to end a conversation, isn't it? That's how God wants to interact in our lives. We started a breakfast radio program just, uh, well, we started recording a few weeks ago. And this past Monday, we went on air. We're not live. We're pre-recording the night before. And we go live, well, we go on air, uh, broadcasted at 6 a.m. in the mornings. Now, it's very early on in our radio breakfast endeavors. We're learning as we go, and we don't have full-time staff. So the people I'm recording with, they're all volunteers or people who work in different areas of the church, and they come in volunteering their time to make this radio show happen. And my co-host for the breakfast program is a very good friend of mine. He works at the North New South Wales office there. And uh, we went in to record. This was just, I think, on Wednesday. We went in to record at 3 p.m. We get there, and he says, my boss has just called me into a meeting. Now, we need to do about an hour and a half of recording. That'll take us to 4.30. I need about an hour and a half to post-process the show. And by 6 p.m., it has to go to the server so it can be streamed to all of our sites. We've got about 120 sites around Australia. So that at 6 a.m. the next morning, the file is ready to go. Now, it has to go in by 6 p.m. If it doesn't go by 6 p.m., every single minute, we start to lose sites that are not going to get it. By 6.30, we're basically not on any site in Australia the next morning. We've done three days of our program. We're about to record Thursday morning's program. You don't go on radio and then decide to have a sicky one day and decide not to have a show, right? It doesn't happen. You can't do that sort of thing. So it's 3 p.m. We're on very tight deadlines. An hour and a half to record. We have to get it right. No mistakes. Right first time. An hour and a half to post-process. Upload it by 6 p.m. 
He gets to the office, I get to the office, I'm ready to go at 3 p.m. He sends me a message, the boss has called me into, my, into his office, we've got a meeting. <sighs> Shendon was telling me about a Fitbit he's got. If I had one of those things, I think the blood pressure, heart rate would have uh, spiked through the roof. Quarter past three, I send him a message, are you coming? He said, it's almost finished. Good. I don't know how we're going to do this, but somehow we're going to get through this. About 4 p.m., I send him a message. <laughs> We've got to record. It's about 4.30 p.m. I am getting so upset. I send him a message. I'm going home. Before I got home, that little voice says, well, maybe you should talk to me. Maybe we can negotiate about this arrangement. Maybe you can have a talk and see how we can resolve this. I said, okay, what do I do? And that little voice says, just be patient and just wait. I can make things happen even if you can't. It's quarter past five. He says, I'm coming in five minutes. And he came at 20 past five. That evening, our technician, our engineer who does the background stuff, was working on the infrastructure, trying to change the workflow so that it would be uploaded quicker and easier to our sites. So we recorded the program, processed it in under half an hour. It it ended up being okay. And I uploaded by around 7 p.m., just after 7 p.m. And I ring the technician. I say, look, is it even going to make it? He says, well, tonight I just got it to the point where you only need to get a show in by 8.30 p.m. Now, if I'd listened to myself, I would have walked out. No breakfast program. I would have been upset. My friends would have been upset. My bosses would have been upset. Everybody would have been upset. But that's what God wants to do. He's that life coach. He knows what everybody is doing everywhere. He says, I want to walk with you. I want to be with you. Let me guide you. Let me talk to you. Let me be by your side. And I can guide you through every one of life's challenges. And you might get on your knees and pray and you feel you don't hear the voice of God straight away. And sometimes God is silent. It seems that way sometimes on some things. But there's a reason for it. You may or may not understand it now. Maybe later you will. But he does talk. He does convict. He shows us what's right and wrong. So we at least have that beginning. And then start getting them up in the morning and say, talk to me, show me, guide me. When you're in a difficult situation, take a few moments to pause. The Bible says in, Matthew in, in Mark 1.35 and Luke uh, 5.16 that Jesus would often start every morning going into a quiet place to pray. And we can do the same. When you're in a difficult situation, go to a quiet place. Take some time out. Now, if you have the TV on, the iPhone in your hand, and the earpods plugged in, and you're trying to communicate with God, it's a little bit loud, isn't it? So many thoughts swirling, you're not exactly sure what you hear. Take some time out. Do that in the morning for some wisdom, guidance along the day. Do that when you're stressed. Do that when you're not sure what to do. And God promises that through that still, small voice, He will guide us. Now, just one final thing. Sometimes there are so many thoughts swirling in our mind that we're not sure whose thoughts are what, right? You ever had that happen? Is it me? Is it my upbringing? Is it God? Is it the devil? Is it what I had for lunch? You're not sure what's going on in there. That's why God says in the Bible that there is a two-way check or there is a safety balance in our communication with him. In John 17, 17, he says sanctify, change, transform, lead, guide, make their lives better through your word because your word is truth. You see, God talks to us in two ways. One is through the Bible. That reveals who he is. And the better you know someone, the better you can identify their voice. Would that be fair to say? You know, when Roy rang up, I didn't have his number in my memory. He would changed his phone number a couple of times coming to Australia America. But because we knew each other well enough, when he rang up, I knew his voice. 
right? As we read the Bible, we get to know the voice and the character of God. That's why the Bible is so valuable. It reveals who Jesus is, as we were talking last night. So spending a few moments each day in the Bible, getting to know the character of God, helps us know who he is. And then when you hear those little voices, you can match it. Does this sound like the Jesus I'm reading about in the Bible? Cut them off. Ram into them on the road. Honk. Show them one of your fingers, preferably not your thumb. Right? Wait a minute, does that sound like the Jesus I read about this morning? In Matthew chapter 5, he says, when someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other one. No, no, so I know that voice isn't Jesus, but the voice that says, hey, you know what? Maybe they're in a hurry. Maybe they're stressed. Maybe they're about to lose their job if they don't get to work on time. Maybe there's a deadline. Maybe there's a surgeon heading into hospital to operate life in a case. Maybe, maybe. So just be patient. Smile, wave, wish them a good day. Wait a minute, that sounds like the Jesus I read about in the Bible. It really does. There's a match. And soon you start to identify that still small voice in your head as matching the same person that you're discovering in the Bible. We're going to finish with a final verse in John. Back to John chapter 14. This is still part of that same talk where Jesus is sharing with his followers, with his friends that is about to leave. And in verse 21, Jesus says, He that has my commandments and keeps them, it's he that loves me, and he that loves me will be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. Just a little later, he actually says, I will move in, I will make my home with him. Jesus is so real and so close that he literally wants to move into your house. He wants to be there in your car. He wants to sit on the chair at work next to you. He wants to accompany you to church at every stage, at every step, in every moment. He says, I want to be there through your thoughts, through your mind. I want to be your life coach. It's not so much about whether he's there. It's whether we want to give him that opportunity. And it's very simple. You don't have to swipe your credit card. There's no terms and conditions. There's no fine print. It's as simple as saying, Jesus, thank you for loving me. Come into my life. And I guarantee you, if you give him that invitation, he can't wait. First, to guide you through baby steps, right, wrong, consequences, and then to get to the point where he can be your best friend that guides you, gives you wisdom, insights, advice, and hope for each and every moment of your life. If he can do it for me, pretty thick and slow, pretty stubborn and arrogant, he can do it for you.